morning. Would you pray with me before you sit down? Oh, I caught you. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we have that promise that we will dwell in the house of you, your house forever. Uh, it is good to be in your house, and we can't wait to do it forever. Uh, it's that good. And so, God, may we uh, turn our attention towards your word. May we allow your spirit the margin in our lives that we might hear what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now y'all can sit down. I love having that power. Uh, So the plants outside are deciding to pollinate, and their pollen is getting into my nose. So if I sound like I have allergies, guess what? I have allergies, okay? How many are with me? Yes. Okay, it is awful. I can't wait for winter to come again. Is that it? Huh? Flown it. I just did something that the pharmacist told me to take, but we'll see if it, it works. It makes my whole like eye, my whole head waters afterwards. So anyways, uh, so good to see you. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My mom is probably watching. So hello, mother. She's looking on this camera right now. Uh, hi, mom. Uh, there's some people waving to you. She hates this kind of attention. Uh, she's not even here. And she's probably like, oh, stop it. So that's how she talks. And she's like, she's like this tall. So this tall. Judah's almost as high as her. Anyway, happy Mother's Day. Uh, It's a day of both pain and pleasure at the same time. So we rejoice for those and with rejoice and we weep those who weep, uh, but we're glad you're here. How many of you go see a chiropractor? It's okay to admit it. There's this like tension with chiropractors, right? People like, oh, you see a chiropractor? Those guys are swindlers or they're not real medicine. But you can have your opinion. I can have mine. I happen to love mine. I went and saw him this week. I, I, if at, at my gym, I do a lot of squatting with weights on my shoulders. And so what I've been noticing is that my hip, 42, so I thought it was just me being 42 and I needed a new hip because I'm getting up there. And uh, I noticed that it was, was not loosening. Like it was super tight. It didn't have any strength. So I go see him and my whole body just felt gross. And so I go see him. I go see him every month and I walk in there and I tell him and he looks at me and goes, yep. There's some problems with you. And he starts listing off two major problems. He says, your pelvis, which is always a funny word, uh, your pelvis is tilted and moving forward. That's a problem. And that's causing your shoulder to collapse down because it's pulling your whole body forward. And I didn't believe him. I was like, yeah, right. Come on. I still have a healthy bit of skepticism until he showed me an x-ray. And I was like, oh, you're right. And then he put me on the table And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm just hosed here. There's no way. I have two major problems, uh, my pelvis and my hip, and it's causing all of this other stuff. And he isolated down to two and he goes, no worries. There's one solution. Two problems, one solution. He puts me down at the table and he has one of those tables that kind of do like it moves. And so he puts me down and he hits the button and he puts me on these blocks and, and then cracks something. I don't know, but it felt delightful. And then he let me sit there for a while, put some warm stuff on my back. And uh, Jaja, I think we just lost all microphone. So people online won't be able to hear this unless it's me. But, oh, oh, there it is. But he puts me on the, he cracks my back and all of a sudden everything feels great. He goes, yep, two problems, one solution. If only everything was that easy. We have a host of problems right now. It's hard to find one solution. James, here in James chapter 4, 
is talking about all of these problems that have come to the church. And in James chapter 4, he isolates down to two major problems. He's given symptoms of the problem, right? He's like a doctor. He's assessing the church going, this hurts, that hurts, this stinks, that doesn't feel right, this is wrong. And he's gone down in James chapter 4, he finally gets down to the root of it. There's two root problems going on in this church. And at the end of it, he says, and there's one solution that will just solve it all. Uh, You can say two birds with one stone, or I have heard recently, for those who are real bird lovers, you feed two birds with one scone, (laughs) which I think is ridiculous, but the person who said it was like, aw, that's sweet. Okay. Anyways, so he goes after, he offers a scone to these two birds, however you say it, and he gives them one simple solution. So today, we're going to look at those problems, James chapter 4, and then we're going to get to his solution. Problem one. James chapter 4, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It seems like there's a lot here. There's, There's fighting, there's arguing. Pretty soon we'll learn that there's coveting, there's more arguing. And in verse 2, it'll be saying killing. You argue and argue and then you kill which is, it's odd again, uh, which is, uh, it escalates quickly, right? You go from arguing, arguing, then to killing. And that seems to, wow, that got there quick. And so there's a lot happening in this passage. There's a lot, a lot of problems. If you were here last week, James spent a considerable amount of time talking about the words that we say. He ended with this rather strong warning verse. If you want to flip back to uh, chapter three, verse 18, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It's with this in mind that James now comes to chapter 4 and the next topic, and we see it, and he starts asking this rhetorical question. That, that phrase, those who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness, shapes chapter 4. He says, so what causes this fight among you? What he's doing us, what he's going to do here is ask these rhetorical questions, and rhetorical questions oftentimes reveal the brokenness within us. So he starts asking these rhetorical questions, and he's going to uh, expose how divided this community is. And so he uses a word to describe fights. He says, hey, are there fights among you? Yes, the word that's used to describe fights in Greek is the same word that is used to describe war. So it's not just a fight like these two are arguing, there's a little quarrel. No, he's saying there's a war happening in your church and and it's a problem. And then he goes on to say there's quarrels that happen in your church. This is talking about a battle. And so we have a battle and we have a war. It's different from an argument. It's different from a disagreement. And what James is exposing is this church is completely marked by different combinations causing a whole bunch of unhealth and division. It's a division that's marked by jealousy, selfishness, anger, a willingness, and a desire to depart from biblical teaching and a host of other issues. James doesn't name a specific event or a specific thing. Oftentimes when you get to Paul, like in Corinthians, Paul says, here's a whole bunch of problems and I'm going to zero in on four of them. And that way you go, oh, there's four problems in the, in the book of Corinthians and a lot of them are pretty big issues. James doesn't do that. Why? And and a lot of scholars would say it's because it's everywhere. It's not just one event. 
It's not just one person, it's the whole church. It's encompassing the church that James is writing to. All of these has stopped the church from functioning as the church stood. It's kind of like if you put water in your gas engine, it's going to go and then it's going to stop. And he's saying the church has stopped functioning because of all the division that we see. It's brought it to a standstill. And it's not something that's culturally based. He's, he's talking about the entire church. There was false teaching in those days that was spreading, and it, and it taught this. It taught that, that you should desire status, that one of the best things that you can do is have influence over other people, and you should pursue influence and pursue status, which went con- completely contradictory to what Scripture teaches. Anything you could do to, to, to get more, whether it's withholding money from people, whether it's looking down and treating other people uh, with favoritism so it elevates yourself, anything you can do to increase your worth, your follower count if you are on social media, or your, your esteem in your business, anything you could do, ethics didn't matter, anything you could do to make yourself look better, you should do it. And because of this, this was causing the wars. But that's not the problem. That problem stems from another problem. James says that these wars come from the desires within them. The word desires in Greek is the word hedone, H-E-D-O-N-E, which means pleasure. He could have used other words like epithema, which also means desire, but he chose hedone. Hedone is where we get, this is totally nerdy, so buckle up. This is where we get the idea of hedonism. How many of you ever heard of hedonism? Hedonism is the belief, a philosophy, that your pleasure, seeking what feels good for you, is all that matters. And so James is saying, look, not only are you seeking what's good for you, the, the, the other word for desire, you're, not just, you're chasing your desires as if it's the only thing that matters. You're off base. Whatever feels good, you're doing it, and that's wrong. Stop it. James is exposing this big problem. Rabbis had taught the same thing for centuries. They taught that our impulses within our body is actually organs within us fighting each other. One wants to go this way. The other wants to go this way. One organ wants that chocolate chip cookie. And this organ is saying, no, it's the same thing that it's the temptations that war within us. Paul talks about this in in Romans chapter seven, when he says, "I, I, I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin within me. It's this tension that you feel, the temptations that you have. James is saying, there's something at war within you and you're chasing down the pleasures as if it's the highest good. It is at war with your soul. James says this untamed hedone for power and authority and approval this desire for popularity, position, and influence, this esteem in the minds of those who are powerful, that is poisoning the church. And the worst part, and James gets to this, is that these desires, they thought that if I just had this influence, if I just had this approval, I will become whole. I'll have peace. If I can get so-and-so to like me and approve of everything that I say, write, think, 
I will have made it and I will have wholeness. Listen to what James writes. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. What's this tell us? You can desire what they're desiring, the wholeness that they think they're going to get, they will never have. And so they're empty and they begin to argue and they begin to fight. They wanted power. They wanted to be influencers. They wanted positions. They wanted importance. They thought these things would bring them everything they desired and they're not getting it. Rather, James says, they're after an illusion of what status might bring them. Status and all that comes with it doesn't bring the wholeness that you're seeking to get is what James ends up saying if we can condense it. Instead of trying to find wholeness in those things, and trying to find wholeness as those things is like trying to find fresh water in the middle of the ocean. It's never, you're never going to be satisfied. You're always going to be searching. You're not going to find it. And James pins down to it. You don't have the wholeness you're looking for Simple, because you don't ask God for it. You're seeking it from the approval of everybody else. It's killing the church, it's killing your relationships, and it's killing your walk with God. You don't have because you don't ask the right person. Remember that song, looking for love in all the wrong place? Yeah, yeah, Steve, you got that. That's your era. Uh, That's all I'm going to sing. Dylan, that's a song. Okay, looking for love in all the wrong places. We should sing that next week. But this is what he's saying. He's saying you're looking for it in the wrong spot. You're not going to find it there. Matthew 7, uh, Jesus gives a promise that you can pray for something. It'll be answers. Matthew 7, he says this, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open for you. James is saying, look, you can ask God for it and you'll get it. He says earlier, if you want wisdom, if you want to be smart, be like Solomon who in 1 Kings said, God, I can ask you for anything. I want wisdom. And God gives Solomon wisdom. It didn't really take hold until the end of his life, but he had it. He says the same thing here. If you want the wholeness you're looking for, find it in the only one who can give it to you. For James 4, 3, he doubles down on the promise. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Another way of translating this, uh, some other translations say it this way. You do not receive because you ask God not for wisdom, but you ask for selfish pleasures that are by definition not in the interest of the Christian community. Your prayers, therefore, are marked by a desire They're marked by hedon, and they are for your pleasure. And the word for pleasure there is the word, they're marked by your desire for consumption. They're marked by waste. They're marked by squander. This word desire is the same used that words used to describe the prodigal son and desiring more. You're just going to get it and you're just going to squander it, James says. You ask just so you can consume. And the root of all of this, he's described a major problem, right? 
And he brings it down to this. The problem with this is a word that we all hate and we accuse everyone else of being it. Arrogance. Your arrogance is the problem. The desires that push you to fight with one another. Arrogance. The desire to make war with your brother or sister within your community. Arrogance. The desire to even kill Arrogance, the desires to pray for something that only satisfy ourselves, the pursuit of our desires, the, 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 the desire that we have to only go for our preferences, our opinions, our views, my thoughts, no one else's unless they match with mine, all boil down to arrogance. And if I don't get what I want, we're fighting. And the words of the seagulls from Nemo, mine, 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 I want it my way, my way. Frank Sinatra, my way. James is saying it's arrogance. You're asking God for what you want and you're asking God and you're not asking God for what he wants. And that posture is going to kill the community and it's going to stop your prayers dead in their tracks. So let's put it together. What's James saying? The first problem we see, your actions. He says this in in chapter two. Your actions matter. Later in chapter two, your faith, if they're not accompanied by works. So he says what you do matter. And then he says in chapter three, what you say matters. And now in chapter four, your motives matter. And he's getting down to it. Your arrogance, if you're doing something anything and your motive is to look better than somebody in your community around you, if it's to better your position, status, or influence, perceived or actual, it's rooted in arrogance. Your motive matters. Jesus was talking about motives in Matthew 6. It's one of my favorite passages. Excuse me. He says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven, which we can read that and go, oh, okay. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message. Be especially careful when you're trying to do good so that you make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. So the people around you will go, hey, you're so awesome. You're so good. I saw your post. Yeah, you're awesome. Good job. If that's your motive, that's all the rewards you're going to get. James says the same thing. If your motive is to benefit you, it's not good enough. You're not going to get it. You might have the approval of everyone around you. You might be deemed prophetic. You might be called brilliant. But God's sitting there like this. Yeah. Okay. I don't get it. It's crippling the church in those days. And I tell you, honestly, it's crippling the church today. We do things and they're good things. And we do them to make ourselves look better, to make our churches look better. And we do things to get the approval of the world around us. It's arrogance. And it doesn't go very far. It might look good on our sign, on our, on our printouts, on our budget reports. It looks great. But God's not applauding. The challenge is to do good for the sake of doing good. 
Not for the sake of, I might get a nice email later, someone saying, great job. That's not the point. We do good not to push ourselves up, not to make ourselves look smarter, more virtuous, more woke. That's not why we do things. We do things, why? Because God says, we do things to get God's approval. We do things because God says it's right, not because our neighbor might think it's right. That's why we do things. Problem one in the church, arrogance. Problem two, let's get to it. Verse four, you adulterous people. That's a nice name, right? He's calling these people adulterous. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy with God. This is one of those verses that sounds weird, right? Oh, I can't be friends of the world. So what's the result? What's our, what, what do we do? We should go start a commune out on the peninsula, right? That's what you say. Oh, I can't be friends with the world. I need to go live off by myself like that movie with M. Night Shyamalan, The Village. We need to start our own thing out here. We can't be polluted by the world. That's not what James is saying here. There's more going on. It's one thing to be friendly with the world. Jesus did that. He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and, and went to those who, who were shunned by popular religion of that day. What James is saying here isn't that we should hide ourselves from the world. James is saying, don't be influenced by the world. The problem is not that they're nice, that's great. The word friendship he uses is the idea of someone influencing you to go a certain direction. You are being influenced by the world. In order to get his attention with this, just in case the people fell asleep, he says, you're adulterous. And which is a term that, that they would have known because it's used in Hosea, it's used in Jeremiah, it's used in Exodus. You adulterous people, you are cheating on God. You have a commitment to God. You, you agreed to be his people. In this sense, you following Christ. He is your king. And now what you're doing is chasing after something else while being joined with Christ. You're, adult, you're adulterous. If that were a marriage, we would call it adultery. And that's what James is saying. You are adulterous. It would get their attention. It's like a person from the South calling a person from the North a Yankee. Like, you call me what? It's a name that they would have known, and he uses it to wake them up. Snap out of it, he's saying. Remember your commitments. Remember where your first love lies. You're slipping away from it. You see, they thought the culture around them had great teaching, and it did. There was a lot of smart people in that culture. But they thought that they can combine the good teaching of the culture or the teaching of the culture and then put them on top of the teachings that they would get from Scripture and Christ and the two would go happily together. They thought, hey, it's the best of both worlds. This is a good practice. And then we would be better for it. However, what ended up happening is what always happens. You end up leaving one for the sake of the other. And which one do you end up leaving? The teachings of Christ, the teachings of Scripture. So in essence, they were following the teachings of Jesus, but intermixing the teachings of Jesus with the teaching of the world. And they thought, because of the first problem, arrogance, that they were getting the best of both worlds. And James says, no, you're not. Not only does James say this, but uh, Paul says the same thing in, first, in 2 Timothy 3. 
He says that the world, same world that James is describing, is treacherous, rash, conceited. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then James, and Paul says essentially the same thing. Nothing to do with such people. The word world means forces or elements that are opposed to God or the human institutions or values and traditions that knowingly or even unknowingly go against what God has taught. They might sound godly. They might sound virtuous. They might sound loving. But the truth is, when you boil it all down, they're not. It goes against what scripture has been teaching. James is not saying that we should never associate with non-Christians. He's saying don't or stop being influenced by them. We should not go blindly along with what the world says and what the world teaches. Even today, there are good things that we can learn from culture. Absolutely, there are great things that we can learn from culture. But there are some things that the church has brought in from culture that are doing the same thing to our church And when I say church, I say the church of Christ, universal, and the church in America, and Bethany, that are polluting the church. We've brought some stuff in that go, man, it doesn't belong here. It doesn't belong in the scripture. And it's polluting the message of Christ. Where the values of Christ and the authority of scripture are replaced by so-and-so's quote, we have a problem. When they're replaced by an authority or a popular opinions that have nothing to do with Jesus, we have some issues. Why? Because you can't serve both sides. It starts with God and his authority, and that's what influences the church. The world changes how we might convey the message of Jesus, but it should never alter the message of Jesus. It might change your posture, but it doesn't change your position. This is what James is getting at here. You can't have it both ways. In verse 5, do you, think that, that, do you think Scripture says without reason that he, God, is jealously longing for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And what James is saying in, in a lot of weird words is God doesn't want this way, this way. Why? Because he's jealous for you. He doesn't want just a part of you. He wants all of you. And it's been like that since the beginning. He wanted all of Adam and Eve. And what first thing that Eve hears, did God really say? And then she chases down and then Adam and then now we're in the mess we're in. But it all starts with bringing in the reasoning from culture and diverting from what God says. Another translation, it says this verse, out of jealousy, God longs for the spirit that he made to be alive in us. All that to say God's desire is that we come home and live with him and in him. He desires for us to ask him for wisdom instead of following and asking for the wisdom of the world. You can't have it both ways. Jesus said the same thing, talking about money, and he names mammon, which was an idol. You can't serve God and serve money. And he says why? Because you'll leave one for the other. And God is jealous for that. It's a difficult drift that James is diagnosing here. And the diagnosis that he comes down with, it's arrogance. And the second one, compromise. Compromise usually ends up this way. I'm going to compromise and do what you want to do. That's how this works. 
I'm going to compromise with it. It's a difficult drift that James is addressing, and it's one that we avoid talking about because it's horribly uncomfortable, right? We don't want to talk about compromise because it exposes all the ways that you and I have compromised. We don't want that. But what's happening here is the church he's writing has begun to shift in the ethics, morals, and teaching of Jesus in order to match the ethics, morals, and teachings of the world around it. And it's been happening in the church today. When we begin to anchor our teachings from church, from our conversations, through our small groups, when we begin to anchor our teachings and our ethics and our morals to what the world around us thinks and feels, when we do this, our teachings, our ethics, and our morals are in a constant state of flux in order to follow the uncontrollable currents that culture has, where the language is changing, where meanings are changing, where beliefs are changing constantly, where we're trying to keep up with these currents of what's popular, what's trendy, what's accepted, and what feels good. It's exhausting. It never works. Because when your definition of what is good and right isn't based on God who is constant... You're always anchoring to something that is changing. This is why we are anchored in Scripture. Because anchored to anything else is heading towards disaster. Instead, what James is instructing this church and us as individuals who are in a church is you must hold fast to what God says. To the authority of what Scripture says. Because when the winds of the world change the directions... Our authority and our anchors is held firm on a God who does not shift. He is constant in all of his ways. Our idea of good is not based on what people outside might call good. Our idea of good is based on what God calls good. Because God's worldview and the world's worldview, as we can see, don't mix very well. Our idea of sex in this culture, has been lessened and lessened and cheapened and cheapened. Why? Because we've strayed away from God's purpose of sex. Now sex is a commodity. It's a billion-dollar industry. And God's saying, no, no, that's not how it was supposed to be. It was originally made for a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it was supposed to be like. And we've cheapened it. Our idea of success is now how much can you acquire? How much Bitcoin do you have? No more Dogecoin, I guess. How much Bitcoin do you have? How much money do you have in your bank account? What's your stocks doing? That's success. That's not how God defines success. It's not acquiring more and more. One of the most successful people in the Old Testament was a guy who took on the whole country, a whole enemy, and he only had 300 men in Gideon complete failure. He lost thousands of people and took on his success. The idea of God's success and the idea of world success. Our view of marriage is cheapened because we've shifted from what God sees of marriage. Our view of healthy relationships is less because we don't know what a healthy relationship is. Why? Because the world says a relationship should get you something. And God says, that's not a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship is someone who will lay down their life for their friend. That's a healthy relationship. The problem James is addressing is that we can't live by two standards. It's not suitable for any kind of foundation. And he's not telling them which one to pick. He just says, so pick one. 
Don't do this both. It's the same words that Moses uses in Deuteronomy. Choose today who you're going to follow. Life or death. Don't care which one you choose, but choose it. You can't have both. Are God's ways or the world's ways? And yes, it seems harsh, right? It's, it seems like it's too much to bear. I mean, come on, Brad, what do you, you, you're so 1993, this is not right. We, we can't have it both ways. We're enlightened. No, you can't. James says it this way, it, it is hard. He says in verse six, God's demands are sometimes deemed harsh. And we're going, yeah, but watch this. He always provides a means to follow him. God opposes, opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The problem that James is addressing is compromise. And it's harsh to say that we don't compromise. But he also says this, you are given the means to not compromise. Because standing out for the world, standing away from the world isn't normal and it's difficult to not be normal. It takes determination, it takes thought, it takes decision, and it ultimately takes guts. And James says, and in order for you to do this, you're going to need this. Grace, God's grace, this, this is the means to follow because you and I and everybody else around us has messed up in this, war, in this place. If you don't think you have, if you don't think you've never compromised, go back to the first part of this chapter and let's talk about arrogance again. Everybody has compromised in some way. That's why there's grace. And here's the solution, two problems, compromise, arrogance. The two problems, the solution is this, stop it. Uh, my, I grew up on Newhart, Bob Newhart, and he has this uh, stand-up bit. He was a comedian, for those of you under the age of 40. He has this, uh, where he's playing uh, a therapist, and people walk in and they'll say, uh, doctor, I have this problem with uh, anxiety and this and this, and he sits down at his desk and goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. How, how, do I, how do I get over it? And he goes, stop it. Next. Someone comes in and says, I have this problem, this problem. And he looks at him and goes, stop it. And this is what James is saying. Hey, you have arrogance. You have compromise. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. A lot of the Bible can be summarized in that. This is your problem. Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Stop with the compromise. And instead, instead of compromise, he gives us some action words. Submit, resist, and come near. Those are all actions that we have to take, right? It's not that, that, you know, God has done his part by giving us the grace. These are responses for us. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify you heart, your hearts. You're double-minded. It's the idea in the path of repentance. God's grace is held out for you, but you still have a part in taking it. Our responses then, submit. The first problem that he, that he listed, a lack of humility. Submission takes humility. In order to get over the lack of humility and your way is the right way, guess what? Submit to it. If the problem is your desires, your cause, your ideas, uh, your, your, your causes for fighting for, uh, it's dividing and possibly killing other people for it, the cure of that is to submit. 
Get rid of it. Come underneath God's authority. The next one, resist. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Seems weird, right? Because some temptations are just stared you right in the face and there doesn't seem to be a way away from it, right? We've all been there. It's weird. Resist the devil and he'll flee, but it's true. All in all, if not, we can say this on good authority, the devil is a coward. And with a prayer and a reminder of the victory of Jesus, he knows he's lost the battle. And so his trick is to convince you that you've already lost and you can't resist. Well, guess what? That's a lie. He's lost. We won. And a simple reminding him of what Jesus has done so you don't have to go down this path will get him well on his way. Resist the devil and he'll run for you, run from you. The last one, come near. God is ready and waiting for your return. The prodigal son, the father standing at the end of the driveway, chasing after his son, which was a sign of undignity on his part, holding up his robe so he can run faster to get come near. And what's the promise? You take one step, God's gonna take the 99 extra to get to you. He longs for you to come back. He longs for you to be more and more satisfied than you can ever imagine. It takes time to get to that place. Any friendship does, but it is well worth it. The problems that James is describing in the church are still the problems in today's church. And guess what? They've been the problems of the church ever since the church was founded. Arrogance and compromise. But the solution is the same solution that has been there since the very beginning as well. Stop, come near, submit, and resist. Then you'll have the wholeness that you're looking for. I had to stop what I was doing on, on Tuesday, go see my chiropractor, submit to him putting my body in weird contortion ways on a table, and then he adjusted it, and I feel better. I'm going to mess myself up in a couple days anyways, but I have to go back, and that's the beautiful thing. You can always come back. We're going to mess up again. You can always come back. Stop. Resist. Come near.